0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow Patriots and American taxpayers, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here at Conservative Review's Northern Command Center on this Thursday, January 9th. Very busy busy week here, really. I mean, since Monday. Um, nonstop, nonstop stuff. Obviously, it started out all about um you know foreign policy iran things like that now that that's died down and actually you know like we said yesterday for a good reason um the president really won that uh at least that salvo uh in a peace through, through strength model um well now we're back to the soap opera and now we're going to be back to impeachment but where Where's the leadership on the important issues? We, we really ran the gambit on yesterday's show going through just a few other domestic security issues where Trump could take his same winning message on Iran and use the same winning tactics he used against the mullahs he could use against his domestic political adversaries. And we, we talked about a little bit with sanctuary cities, criminal justice, all these crazy things that places like New York and San Francisco are doing. What the president could do at a federal level, both in terms of legislative priorities, DOJ priorities, and the bully pulpit, if nothing else, as Reagan used, particularly on the issue of crime. But we talked a lot about some of these criminal stories. Um, I have a stack of papers in front of me today that I printed out. And these this is just a smattering of what some of you send to me, some of what I see. Of just the most insane cases of people barely serving time for the worst offenses, despite, you know, endless rap sheets. And it goes on and on. Yet, where's the voice? Where is the voice of the people? Um, You know, I'm hearing that there are still other avenues within into the White House pushing more and more leniencies um I even hear Oprah Winfrey is involved that's from my sources we'll see that in the coming days but it's very hard to find voices that are actually looking at this from the other perspective as Reagan always said you know the system seems to fail the victims of crime and that's really a failure of go- of government so one of those voices we've had on before Rafael Manuel he's the deputy director of legal policy studies at the Manhattan Institute. He also writes for their City Journal, terrific um, publication, a lot of really good articles there. He's a columnist at the New York Post. He's written a lot of good stuff on New York and Baltimore, what's going on there. I want to see you know, what's the latest in these cities and what we could learn not to repeat um, and what we need to combat in the rest of the country. So with no further ado, Raphael, great to have you back.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, Dan.
0: So everyone really loved your substantive discussion we had on a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to kind of continue um, a lot of what we've seen. Um, I know you have an article out uh, right before New Year's about Baltimore, very close to me. Um, very interested in that, but I want to just take a broad step back. I just recorded a half an hour show with um, another conservative host asking about first step act and nonviolent offenses. I spoke yesterday. I mean, these are guys that are within my movement and the what, what, I, what I am shocked about is. Typically in policy, when you have something that is being pushed, it's like, well, maybe there's a kernel of truth to it, but you're wrong. You went too far. What I am starting to see the last couple of years, but really accelerating recently. Is that the truth is the exact opposite of what they're saying. In other words, forget about the drug stuff for a minute that the federal prosecutors only target those that are really gang members, they have long rap sheets, um they're often even initially arrested for bigger crimes, plead down. It's just a tool used since Reagan to get them off the streets. I'm talking about straight up murder, robbery, child sex offenses. Every day I have a litany of cases here that serve no time. What am I missing yeah. here?
1: well you're not missing a lot um you're you're're you're sort of spot on 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 the misconceptions that are driving this debate and i think when when this conversation started and it should have started right i mean you know our system is not perfect there is no human endeavor that is perfect um there was sort of a kernel of truth to the underlying concerns that sort of uh, opened people up to the idea of reform um but what happens is is what happened in that case is what tends to happen generally when you talk about these things is that that kernel of truth starts to kind of you know get thrown in the microwave it pops up into this thing that's much much bigger than than what the situation is in reality and people activists, journalists, you know, sort of run with the things that are most conscious shocking, um, that ends up becoming the new truth. And then it informs a whole bunch of really consequential policy shifts. And I think that's what we're seeing in the criminal justice space, where you've got all these, you know, really far reaching reforms and proposals for much further reaching reforms, then, um, you know, what the situation on the ground would would dictate, which is, you know, reforms at the margins to address the kind of inefficiencies and much smaller problems um, that don't actually characterize the system as a whole but um unfortunately that's 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 what we're working up against
0: so one of those places is obviously in new york um we talked about this before it was fully enacted now it's there um more than any other time that i've noticed of really five years of covering this intensely yeah people are finally paying attention i mean this is the first time where i'm not the only one popping out articles on crime like that's actually an issue And, you know, everyone's noting how uh, this sex offender let out, this guy was only murder two, they could get him on not murder one. So he's let out. What are you seeing on the ground in New York? And do you think there will be any opportunity for a counter offensive against this?
1: I, I do think there's going to be a, a real opportunity for for a somewhat significant rollback of this, and I, I really hope that people follow through on this. I think what happened in New York is that people were sold an idea in the abstract um, based on, again, a really kind of uh, overblown characterization of what reality was in terms of pretrial detention. Um, I think people were sold the idea that there were just people sort of rotting away in Rikers Island for years at a time mm-hmm. while their trials were pending, while their cases were pending, and they were consistently being found innocent or, you know, acquitted of all charges. And yet, you know, they they served all this time in these horrible conditions. When the reality is, is that the vast majority of, of people who are arrested by the NYPD, I think they make like 300 something thousand arrests a year, only about 10% of those arrests result in an admission um, to jail. And the vast majority of those admissions are very, very short stays where people, make bail um you know within a couple of days, certainly within a week. I think it's like 75% of people, yeah. um, you know, make bail. And the, you know, so the people who are staying there were people who were either remanded, um, which is ordered held without bail, um, you know, or uh in some cases they couldn't make bail or they had, you know, sort of other offenses where they were sort of cycling in and out, um, or violations of, of pre-existing uh, criminal justice statuses like parole or probation. Now, you know, the thing is, is that in New York, before all this stuff took place, I think judges were probably, even though the law didn't really allow them to, were in practice um, using bail as a way to kind of, um, you know, hold, at least for a short period of time, some of these more dangerous uh, offenders, people with longer criminal records, et cetera. Um, You know, again, New York has never really allowed judges to take danger into consideration. Um, But now, that we've sort of significantly cut back on the cases in which judges can impose bail. When you combine that with the fact that the the New York city jail population was already kind of reserved for the worst of the worst, um, you're starting to get all these cases um, that you know, otherwise might've resulted in in some sort of pretrial holding, um, where these guys are kind of waltzing out of the courtroom before their victims are even out of the hospital. And that is, uh, I think upsetting to a lot of New Yorkers who were never really prepared for that reality. And so, um, I think the backlash is just based on, uh, you know, this kind of sense of being mugged by reality where it's like, Oh, I didn't realize that that this is what this all meant. Yeah. I didn't realize that these are the sort of offenders you were talking about. And so I'm actually pretty encouraged by by some of the, you know, Democrats who have articulated uh, openness to to rolling this back. And I think, there, there's a really good way to do it that's that's realistic, um, that can help sort of claw back some of the public safety uh, gains that that we lost through this um, bungled initiative, um, and 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 we can we can do this by looking to our neighbors uh, across the Hudson in New Jersey, right? New Jersey did bail reform in, in 2014, but I'm not saying by any means that it was perfect or that it was ideal or that this is what you want. I think you know they've seen a, an uptick in in crime committed by people who are out with pending cases, but Judges in New Jersey and in other jurisdictions that have done bail reform have been empowered to hold people when they pose a significant threat to public safety. Um, In New Jersey, judges are also empowered to revoke a release if that offender commits a new offense um, while they were out. These are really important prophylactics that the New York bail reform did not include. Um, And it didn't include that because these these, sort of progressive advocates who were handed this task to create this reform never had to debate this on the floor of of, uh, the New York State Assembly or Senate. they you know, the, the, the lawmakers did not consult law enforcement experts um, and, and policy folks on the other side of this issue. And they kind of just rammed it down everyone's throat through the budget process. And, and this is where we ended up.
0: So one of the things that I find interesting about the, the issue of bail is, again, what bothers me is too often, even in conservatives, they're led by the left, they're led down the garden path to focus on this little squirrel. But you have to st- stand back and say, hey, what's behind the bushes? Where are you coming from? Where are you headed? This- right. you-, you look in totality, and you're seeing it up and down the system. It's the war on the police tactics. It's the prosecutions. It's evidentiary standards and increasing more loopholes loopholes that ensure that already the majority who plea- plead down were forced to take even, even more pleas. Um, early release. Reduced sentencing. And right. then pretrial. So, you know, you put it together and there's, well, OK, maybe we don't hold them. But if you know you're going to get convicted, you're going to get slammed. Maybe there's more of a deterrent. So it's not as much of a public safety problem. But no, it's all of it together. You mentioned New Jersey. Let's go through one of these cases. Very fascinating. This should be national news, but it's not. Um, we had two high profile shootings in the same week. The Jersey uh, City gunman, um, that guy, uh, Keith Thomas. Uh, who is part of that Hebrew Israelite church. Right. Um, I'm I'm sorry. um, No, it was another guy. And then Keith Thomas, the guy who shot a Kinnaman, the guy who shot up the Texas church, Mm -hmm. but wound up in New Jersey for a few years or a period of time. So I profiled both of them. So the Jersey city City shooter had a bunch of arrests, several felony firearms, domestic uh, violence, twice in Ohio. Um, as well as maybe New Jersey, too. A couple of aggravated assaults resulting in bodily injury. I could not find any significant um, prison time in his record, and he was out. But what came out in um, New Jersey, some New Jersey media earlier this week, that Keith Thomas Kinnan, the um, Texas shooter, the uh, West Freeway Church of Christ in White Settlement, Texas, this guy now i chronicled he had about 12 arrests in oklahoma arizona and texas a lot lots of serious um, felony assaults again i could not find more than 90 days um, time served throughout his entire record firearms charges but then we saw at the time there was something in new jersey but new jersey is very tough to get the records but they got it here in new jersey 101.5 Um, They say that he was caught with felony possession, a 12-gauge shotgun, the same kind that he used three years later in the shooting, but he wound up getting downgraded to some low-level misdemeanor that had nothing to do with firearms, and he didn't serve time. I am seeing this really as the story of the firearm stuff that Reagan talked about all the time. Firearms and drugs is really the linchpin to a lot of this.
1: Yeah, no, it really is. I mean, um, uh, yeah, I wrote a piece a while back for City Journal, which you, you kindly mentioned, um, uh, in the intro, um, Basically asking the question, you know, are are Democrats really serious about gun crime? right? I and mean, we hear so much of this, especially, you know, from from major presidential candidates, including Mike Bloomberg now, um you know how how gun crime is and gun violence is such a national issue and such an important thing to tackle. Um And they've got lots of, you know, policy ideas on the gun control side of things. But no one ever really pays attention to the reality that, I mean, this country saw a huge reduction in gun crime, driven largely by a reduction in New York City, um, that was achieved through... Policing and incarcerating serious offenders, and um, it's a giant misconception that drives a lot of this discussion. That you know our criminal justice system is overly draconian and characterized by these long sentences um, that are handed down like candy. And the reality is, is that you know uh, only about forty percent of felony convictions result in a post conviction prison sentence. I know that's shocking for a lot of people to yeah. hear, but probation. Time served in jail pre-trial, um, oh, yeah. you know, home confinement are all much more uh, likely sanctions. Um, and and then when people actually do go to prison, the amount of time served actually tends to be relatively short. I think yep. about forty percent of all people who go to prison are out within a year or close to that number. I mean that and that's you know, often these are- very
0: serious things. Very serious. Right. We just had a case in Oklahoma, uh, in Oregon, we covered um, uh, rape of three. Teenagers, three teenage girls. The guy was sentenced to 14 years, and the estimate would be you'd only serve maybe seven to ten months. And you know, you notice a lot of times you read the arrest warrant, and it sounds pretty bad, but ultimately it's second, third degree rape. And to the average person, it's like you know what's the difference? But that you know that's what often gets them very small sentences. And we're not—I'm not talking about drugs. I've almost stopped even covering that, although that's important. I'm talking about rape, robbery, murder. There's tons of them. And, and that includes multiple offenses. Like you said, even even murder one, sometimes and certainly murder two, less than 10 years for a lot of them. Some of them do still serve a long time. A lot of them don't. And, and, right. and my problem is, where's the balance of equities? Like you talked about reform. I, my problem is not just that they went too far. That they took the kernel and put it in the microwave. It's that well, you're focusing on the colonel, but what about the rock? I mean, like, yeah, you could show me five stories of guys who really reformed and whatever, and they're serving a long time, but I could show you, let me introduce another piece of evidence in this case, get your comment on it. Yesterday, we talked about the case of um, this dude, Deshaun uh, Garrison in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And this guy, by the age of 17, had 12 arrests, yeah. bad stuff. The last one was in May for um, for carjacking. And I think with with a weapon and he wow. stole and, and it was vehicle theft. He was let out on 70,000 bond two days later. So, again, freeze frame to speak to your point. Even without New York's like infamous law, the culture and policies and a lot of the county courts has really been oriented towards low bail no bail even without right. this he's let out 2 days later he's arrested for grabbing a female jogger i mean this is the worst type of case this is at its core why we have government to protect our liberty i mean what i mean to say is it wasn't like a domestic violence i mean a totally right. person nothing to do with him grabbed her raped her and it must have been really bad because um he he was um, also charged with aggravated assault by strangulation battery that caused substantial physical harm. Um, it was a wow. pretty bad one. She's, she said anonymously, her name wasn't put out, that she thought she was going to die. Someone wound up intervening, a good Samaritan. Um. So, okay, finally, this is what it takes. He shouldn't have been out. And and this happened. He's held without bond. Just this past month, a couple months later, um, the Fulton County Superior Judge decides to grant him 50,000 bail. Nah. I mean, and, yeah. and this is not unique. It really isn't.
1: Right. Yeah. No, it's not unique. Um, You know, a lot of our our very serious uh, violent crime across the nation is and has long been committed by people with with active criminal justice statuses. Right. And more than a third of violent felons um, commit their their crimes while either on probation, parole or out on bail or or bond with a pending case. Um, That that portion that commits it while on on bail or or bond with a pending case is about 12 percent. Um, which is not an insignificant number at all. I mean, especially when you uh, you know consider that whole pie that more than the third pie. I mean, these are definitionally avoidable crimes, right? These are people that we have a legal justification to incarcerate. Um, we've chosen not to incarcerate them as a matter of policy. Um, in some cases, we're directed that way um, as a matter of law. But you know, again, these are all policy choices that we're making, and I think you're right. Uh, some real thought has to be given to what the balance ought to be. Um, you know, at the, in the bail issue, there is a real tension um, that I think started driving uh, conversations about reform initially. Right? Uh, you know, we we do have a presumption of innocence in in this country that um, ought to be respected, and there's a line that could potentially be crossed given the length of a particular term of pretrial incarceration. Sure. Um, but again i think judges uh you know should have the uh the uh, power and ability to to hold someone who poses a significant risk yeah. um and there are other ways to address that concern of long pretrial detentions by you know speeding up the speedy trial process um which is often really as simple as a matter of funding um you know there are very few public policy problems uh that that funding is the kind of clear solution to but Here our criminal it is. justice system I mean, exactly I mean,
0: th- th- this is what, okay th- the this is what really bothers me. And I want to I'm glad you brought that up because I want to segue it into the prison overcrowding talking point. Like I always say, if you if you're at a very busy street that doesn't have a light and you're making a left turn. One thing that's not an option is to say, I've waited long enough. I'm troubled by it too much. I'm going anyway. Right. OK, I mean, you could try to petition for a light. You could take a different route. But what's not an option is to kill yourself. right? But somehow, the oh, that's the only option that's taking place. It's always jailbreak. It's always release. It's a, like, we never have problem throwing money at everything. But somehow, when it comes to this, they made a decision, conveniently, no more funding for enforcement, wh- whether it be trials, whether it be prison population. So let's right. go on to the prison population. So a big part of what they're talking about is um, overcrowding. Now, again, show me an individual that you feel doesn't belong in there in in an individual level. We'll talk about it, but then I'll show you 500 other people that do belong in there. So fundamentally, don't tell me there's too many people. If it's overcrowding, then build more prisons. But they conveniently don't want to do that because they because it's about jailbreak. But is there more to it? One of the things that bother me about that talking point is typically when you talk about a crisis in policy, it means that you're at the pinnacle, you're at the peak of a trajectory. But if you look at the prison population, I mean, in almost every state, it's down federal federal level is significantly down. Many states like Maryland, it's down close to 30 percent. I mean, what it's it's more of a problem now than 10 years ago.
1: No, and and to be fair, I mean these conversations are not new, right? I mean, I, I watched a, a debate uh, not too long ago that took place in 1994, hosted by William F. Buckley on Firing Line, um, where the you know the, the the tone of the conversation and the topics being discussed were almost identical to what you know, we're discussing now. So, um, yeah, and if you read James Q. Wilson's Thinking About Crime, a lot of the arguments that he's addressing in that book are, are the arguments that are continuously made by decarceration advocates now. But I think you're right to point out that, yeah, the policy solutions to some of these problems are often a one-way ratchet, right? We hear a lot about how, you know, prison and jail stays can be criminogenic, um, which is to say that, you know, the conditions within those facilities can make people more prone to criminal activity later on in life, either, you know, by exposing them to traumatic experiences experiences or sort of normalizing violence in their, in their psyches. But again, there are other ways, uh, to combat that, right? I mean, prison overcrowding can be addressed by building more prisons yet. We have a no new jails movement, yep. um, here in New York, uh, you know, and lots of places, convenient. New York, California have been cutting capacity. um, you know, uh, so ag- again, you know, making prisons uh, more spacious and more abundant um, is is a way to potentially not only make them safer, but make them more conducive environments to rehabilitation and. Um, you know, I, I don't think that the, the solution should always be decarceration, especially because those are not cost free endeavors. Right. This is the thing that often gets left out of the conversation, which is, you know, there's all this focus on the cost to the individual that's incarcerated. And, you know, again, they're entirely entitled to consideration in public policy discussions. But we also have to consider the fate of of, of you know communities and the potential victims within those communities that suffer from the presence of these people um, uh, outside of, of prison and jail walls. And, and that's a real thing. I mean, there, there is no better way to uh, sort of prevent crime other than incapacitation. I mean, there are certainly rehabilitation programs that have shown some promise. A lot of those rehabilitation programs, though, however, have significant selection bias, which is to say that, you know, the people who are Showing success within them usually have other markers uh, of likelihood of success, right? They seek out those programs. They have to apply, and
0: and and guess who's not in those? The the people in the pipeline who are the most violent. That see that this is what bothers me about that whole discussion. You and I both know, as much as we're law and order people, you could go and grab individuals, especially if they're over the hill of the um criminal age and they're older, rotting in prison even even if they committed murder one i could be fairly confident that that individual if i let him out he's not going to commit murder again i i could be fairly there are people like that
1: Oh, there are lots of people but, like that. I mean, the you know the data on this again, yeah. People definitely age out of age crime, out. but they don't age down to zero, which yeah. is key, right? I well, mean, just they, yesterday there was a ninety-three year old in Las Vegas who shot <laughs> a property manager twice uh, because he was upset about a leak in his apartment. So
0: <laughs> no, some uh, and that's the thing. Some people it never ends. But but I'm not even. I'm making a different point. Sure. You're right. A, it doesn't go down to zero. So you certainly can't take that risk. B, there's the justice issue for the for the victim. But I'm even more important. My big thing is number three. It's deterrent. The problem that we're seeing is all of the people, not just 17, 18, 19, 20, but now already 12, 13, 14
1: right. that
0: are seeing the people in front of them. And you're seeing all these people that they let out under the guise of let's have these programs. But nonetheless, what they're doing is reducing prison time. It's not deterring the worst of the worst. And that's what we're starting to see. And I want to segue that discussion into juveniles. So I just mentioned to you the Atlanta case. The other aspect of this is the guy was 17. And that probably plays a big role in why, despite the horrendous stuff the guy did, um, he was offered bail. Reagan talked about this at length. He talked about, again, when you talk about the balancing of equities, the need to have, okay, we could discuss some of your grievances, but what about our grievances? What about the areas where we need to be tougher? Again, Reagan was the first person that I know of to use the word criminal justice reform. It was a criminal justice reform act of 1981, and that meant something very very different. It was dealing with juveniles. It was getting rid of the exclusionary rule. And it was the insanity defense. Those were things he banged away at on all of his radio addresses for many years. So let's try to go through some of them juveniles. Um, if you look at Reagan's um, commission for victims of crime, and I love the name of it. He was very into that. Um, you could see it online again. You Google it. There were recommendations. This is recommendation five of the recommendation PDF. Page fifty one. If you haven't seen it, you should take a look at it, Rafields. It's, it's it's just unbelievably prescient. The stuff it says about juveniles, um, that basically they 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 treat the juvenile as the victim. It's all about studying his his problems, never about um, the victims. They say many, however, many juvenile offenses drastically exceed this type of conduct, meaning just the you know young and stupid type of stuff. Arm sure. robbery, rape, murder cannot be laid at the door of mere immaturity or youthful exuberance. The victims of these crimes are no less traumatized because the offender was underage. And they go on to say a substantial um, proportion of the violent crime in this country is committed by juveniles, a substantial portion. Already, this is in 1982, sure. who are becoming more violent. At an increasingly early age, I'm reading this from 1982 and thinking like you look at Tessa Majors, the college student in Manhattan, 13 right. and 14 year olds being arrested. And where I live, you wrote a lot about Baltimore. I live just on the county side. Everyone knows the city set a record murders per capita. What a lot of people don't realize is Baltimore County saw an 85 percent increase in homicide this year. Wow. All time record. What we see in my in my community, we don't get the homicides endless carjackings now and you want to talk about cost to victims i have a lot of stories right. about uncompensated crime big problem all of them are juveniles they often have weapons they often have five felonies they don't serve a day in prison
1: yeah i mean look juvenile justice is a is a real issue um you know they're not uh, they are dangerous right i mean there there are juvenile offenders who are just as dangerous as, you know, a 21 year old or a 25 year old or a 30 year old, especially if they have, you know, uh, just ready access to firearms, which is increasingly the case um, you know it, 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 it is something that's extremely important New York State has been seeing a lot of this and New York State passed a raise the age law um, a couple years ago uh, under Cuomo which you know ha- has its own problems and issues there was you know one case um, where a 17 year old was arrested in possession of a glock several uh, hundred rounds of ammunition, machete brass knuckles because he was a juvenile, was uh, released on, on just probation and a week after that shot a police officer in the face. Um, thankfully that police officer survived and and he's now been given, I think, 25 uh years uh in prison. But you know, it it is not the case that just because someone is uh under the age of maturity, that they are uh not a threat to the public. Some in many cases they very much are, and I think that the justice system ought to be able to make that determination and and sentence them accordingly. You know, the other issue though that pops up in the juvenile discussion that no one really talks about, and I've got a a piece coming out about this in in the uh, winter issue. City Journal which uh, should be out soon is the the way that um, our sort of leniency towards adult offenders with kids actually contributes to the juvenile offender problem right wow. There is a lot of research out there in the psychology and sociology space um, that show that when you um, expose young children, to parents who have and exhibit high levels of antisocial behavior, that that exposure to the antisocial behavior is associated with the development of behavioral disorders that we know, especially for young men and young boys, um, is very closely correlated with criminality in adolescence and, and in later life, right? So, you know, by, and this is important because a big Sort of plank in the decarceration argument, um, especially from the left, is that incarceration breaks up families, right? You hear this a lot. These are, you know, families destroyed, breadwinners and role models taken out of the home and the community, and this has an aggregate, you know, negative impact. But there's actually a, quite a bit of research that shows that when you look into parental and sibling incarceration as well, um, the effects on children are actually a net positive because you're taking out this antisocial force mm-hmm. um, from their lives. You're taking out people who can introduce them in into a criminal um, network um, that will then sort of lead to criminality uh, on, on the juveniles part in later life. So, you know, th- this is a really complex issue and, and, and one that we really ought to th- tackle and, and think carefully about.
0: I got to send you a link to that. I don't know if you've ever read that, but the Reagan commission headed by Ed Meese, it is, yeah. it's just unbelievable reading it from 35 years ago that he said the same things that and he was already warning about them or the commission was warning about it. And you know, I, I see it even worse. The the juvenile thing is really disturbing because we we've had on sheriffs here talking about the knockout game and things like that. And you know, right. you know, you have a five, six-year-old talk trash to you, you're like, Yeah, and no, no one, you know, views that as a threat. But you know, some of these that become big and strong at, you know, easily post puberty and then 15, 16, 17 years old, I mean like with this 54-year-old woman jogger, this 17-year-old was easily able to killer with his bare hands that could you know easily happen we saw this with tessa majors you know small 19 year old college student you know these these ruffians and again they're they're doing it younger and younger because they're seeing their you know older brothers or, or people in the gangs a little ahead of them constantly cycling in and out and i feel like this is all rooted in in political correctness it's all rooted in 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 this big lie of um you know how we don't want to um, put too many blacks in prison. And you look at the FBI statistics on, I mean, black crime in general, again, it's 54 percent of homicide arrests, 55 yeah. percent of robbery arrests. Um, yeah, and that,
1: that, that actually that's but a juveniles, really is, even point. More, juveniles right. is even
0: more Juveniles is even more.
1: Well, this is a really important point, though, too, because we know that victimization tends to be interracial, right? So this focus on the enforcement side um, can be really frustrating because it, it does leave aside that there is also a very significant uh, disparity on the victimization side, right? I mean, um, uh, black Americans are significantly more likely to be violently victimized, um, and, and that matters, too. And, and protecting them is a is just a, a, as As you know, valuable a goal to pursue, and I just want to also just say something about the the, the the dead bodies
0: where I live. Like again, we get the carjackings, right? But the dead bodies in Baltimore are almost
1: all black, right? Right. I mean, these are people who are entitled to justice, entitled to a real sense of security in their own communities, right? We know what the impact. We know we can see the impact when a life is taken very clearly, right? We see that life it's lost. These are years lost. but there is a broader impact that crime has that sort of trickles down and ripples out when 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 there's a high level of violence in the community and it and it it it, it drops it's associated with a drop in school performance it's uh, associated with you know a drop in employment you know it's hard to Go about living a positive life when you were consistently surrounded, um, you know, by by high levels of violence. It really adds to your anxiety. It really stunts, you know, uh, development and and the, the sort of absorption of information. If you're, you know, a young student trying to to make your way out, um, and, and so that matters. I just also very quickly wanted to touch on the deterrent point that you made too, because you know one of the things that you often hear in the criminal justice reform debate is that. You know, a a lot of this is the result of these socioeconomic root causes where, you know, um, crime is driven by a lack of opportunity. Right. And if we could just give them the opportunity, it would cost more to engage in criminal behavior. Baltimore
0: City Mayor Jack Young just said that.
1: Yeah. Right. And, And, you know, there 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 is something to that. Right, But it's wrong to think that the only way to affect the crop the cost structure in the mind of a of a criminal who's uh, apparently logically evaluating this cost benefit um setup is to increase the penalty, right? That would also affect the cost structure because
0: exactly, here here's the deal, Raphael It is true. If you're wealthy, it's very rare that you know they commit violent crimes and start raping and assaulting people on the street that way. But it's also true that there's plenty of um, low-income counties in America. You go to Appalachia. Now, you might have some, like, drug problems, but that's more they're kind of, like, self-immolating, dying themselves. But this, like, beating people up on the street thing, not so much.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, you'll see a lot of different sort of crime. My guess is uh, uh, not my guess, but from what I remember, there's a lot, you know, a a big domestic violence problem um, in Appalachian counties as well. But you're right. The homicide rate is is significantly lower. The violent crime rate more generally um, is significantly lower uh, than than places like Baltimore and Chicago. But also important, too, is to recognize that the vast majority of poor people are good law abiding people. Right. It's somehow um, the vast majority of people, you know, who who are in the same socioeconomic boat, do not commit crimes, right? And I think it's actually a kind of unintentional smear of a large uh, portion of, of low-income communities to say that you know uh, all this criminal behavior can just you know be chalked up to socioeconomic status. I, I, I don't think that is—it's uh, disgusting. That in takes into view. account the complexities of, of what goes into to criminal behavior over time.
0: It really is. It, I mean, it, it's disgusting. What I'm seeing is a culture of violence. Reagan warned about it. and it's funny they even in in this section they talk about the schools you know like what we saw with Parkland um, now that they, they're starting it already with um county laws state laws plays in California where you can't even suspend someone you can't expel someone forget about even um you know prison time um, students should enjoy the right not to, to to go to school without risk of being stabbed robbed approached by drug dealers or harmed by persons under the influence um you know again he's talking about this 1982 already and we're seeing this problem and you know i have three boys right all boys um no girls and you know it's it's all deterrent i mean it's just with with just behavioral stuff you know if 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 it's a free-for-all they will do it and especially if you're predisposed in some areas to more of a culture of violence everyone's focused on all the you know PC stuff and 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 like you said there's multiple facets there's a place for rehabilitation there's a place for other things but you got to have the deterrent and and what I'm seeing across the board is it is so hard for people to serve hard time anymore um no matter what they do and then certainly at a young age to me it's inconceivable that we're not on the cusp of a massive crime wave Because we're seeing it with New York already. Certainly the subwaves, even homicide, I believe, is up 8% in New York last year. Um,
1: I mean, I will say, though, about New York... I'm I'm probably more skeptical than you are that we'll see a crime wave at least in the immediate future, right? Like one of the one of the things but that think we think seeing people, it
0: already. I mean, on the we're seeing a
1: significant uptick in crime, but it's a significant uptick from a very very low point, right? So there's a lot of room between where we are now and the point at which. Whoa, we whoa, but
0: but that's like a big that. problem.
1: I mean, sure, no, I'm not saying it's not know, a problem. If I say there's a
0: significant there's, uptick in the or, or or downtick in life expectancy. Oh, but it's still not not at the 1920s. Well, dude, I mean, we've actualized all this for a reason. You know, sure. we, we should we should gain it with the technology. There's cameras everywhere. Gone are the days where everything is unsolved. I mean, we still have that. But it's right. like we well, catch that's exactly these guys. The point,
1: that's exactly the point that I wanted to make. Right. A lot of communities now by virtue of a host of different factors, technology, um, population growth, um, you know, demographic shifts a lot of communities are less vulnerable to the sort of high levels of crime that characterized the eighties and nineties. Um, but that does not mean that we're not eroding away um, progress that was made in that interim and that we're not reaching our full potential. And that should matter just as much.
0: Sure. And and, and obviously Baltimore, you wrote about it. I want to um, tell everyone to go to the New York post, the bloody toll from Baltimore, Chicago, soft on crime mindset. You talk about those cities, mainly but again, if it were just those cities, and I understand those really are a crime wave, they're sure. really in absolute terms, especially Baltimore in absolute numbers. Really, I could say just it, it started to get like it was in 1990, 91. And now I think oh, Baltimore
1: has it exceeded its peak. And yeah, now
0: it's exceeded its peak. But what disturbs me is I'm seeing this in almost all 50 states to some degree. Let's take Atlanta. So I mentioned, you know, Georgia, Atlanta. Um, this is very disturbing. Um this is in a red state but nonetheless um according to Atlanta police in one police zone they call police zone 5 this is midtown they had an 11% increase in robberies 36% increase in thefts this year or, or 2019 over 2018 um and if you look at a recent report from the Atlanta repeat offender commission interesting Um, They say in 2017 and 2018, just 23 percent of repeat offenders arrested by Atlanta police were sentenced to any degree of confinement by Fulton County Superior Judges. Just 23 percent a decrease. That's a decrease of nearly 14 percent from 2016. The most common sentence issued was time served. Right. And then now, keep in mind, more and more are getting out pre-trial too right so you know i don't know i mean to me that that looks like it's very likely we are headed to an upward trajectory in a lot of places
1: sure yeah i mean and look there are a lot of places that are approaching their 1990s peak if not exceeding the baltimore is uh, one of them chicago came you know uh moved a lot closer to it in 2016 although it's been sort of uh being uh pared back a, a bit though the the levels are still very much elevated from where they were in in 2014 um let's say but there are other cities around the country too where this is a real problem st louis new orleans detroit um you know uh cleveland and cincinnati there are areas in 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 those cities that are just really really problematic louisville kentucky um is another uh a- example alaska um, West- <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, again, I think it's it's wrong to kind of aggregate things at the national level, especially yeah. and say, like, hey, we're at, you know, we're still at a near 25 year low, which is a talking point that a lot of decarceration activists like to, to, to point to. And that's true. But that doesn't really matter uh, to the person who's living in a really high crime neighborhood on the south side of Chicago. Right. I mean, you know, um, the, the talking about crime, the aggregate is is kind of meaningless because you don't experience crime in the aggregate, right? You experience it where you live at a given point in time. And if you live in a really bad neighborhood or dangerous, uh, you know, part of a city, um, what you want is, is to feel safe. And that means enforcement. And, you know, so it's not just the, the safety, uh, decrease that we get from decarceration, but it's also how that contributes to enforcement trends and attitudes among law enforcement communities. Um, and I think Atlanta actually is a really good example of this, where um, the chief there recently announced that uh, their police department was not going to engage in uh, a big chunk of, of high-speed chases now. Um In part because the the calculus of whether it was worth engaging in that chase um, has now been changed by the sort of incarceration practices where it's like, why bother putting um, the public and the officer at risk of a high speed chase if when you catch that person, they're just going to be sort of cycled back out into the street. And, uh, you know, again, I'm not sure that's a really good thing. and I, I do think it's important to sort of take into consideration how these incarceration trends are affecting the morale of law enforcement institutions, um, which can also have a significant impact on crime. I mean, again, in Baltimore and Chicago, those are two really good examples of how when police activity really goes through the floor and decreases um, – it can drive crime in and of itself. Um, you know, I think in Baltimore uh, police initiated stops have gone down like 70% between 2014 and 17. That's a, that's a big drop off. And in Chicago, we know that the decrease in police stops in 2015 mm-hmm. and 16 led uh, largely to uh, the murder spike of of 60% that we saw that year. So um, these are all really important and, and complex again, issues.
0: You get punched from both sides. This is the sure. important thing. Why you have to look at this in totality. Oh, right prison reform bail reform but police reform well wait a minute there's one thing you say hey let's do something different here but we're going to go tough here but you don't have the front end back end you know it's all this the slide is all going down to the same location and there's there's a very clear agenda here you know another place you look at um is oklahoma oklahoma i mean this is a state democrats haven't carried a single county since 2000 and yet i mean they've gotten very into. um jailbreak because of the stigma of having the highest you know per capita incarceration rate. Um all right fine okay you're upset about that. So they started practicing a lot of what San Francisco I mean ironically Oklahoma San Francisco did um in this uh state question 780 downgrading theft downgrading the drug crimes. Um we talked a lot about the real violent crimes but the low level stuff does make a difference too because sure. Here's the deal what we're seeing there and I'm just looking through some of uh some of my notes here um you know just from from what we're seeing the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office that's the largest sheriff's office there uh, the urban area of Oklahoma City since the threshold of certain crimes changed some felonies to misdemeanor's back in 2017 we have seen a steady increase in thefts in Oklahoma County just like we hear about in California um basically according to the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations larceny crimes increased by um, more than 7% in the state's most populous county. Um, Statewide problems with retail theft continue to rise. Um, Mark Mayer, spokesman for the Sheriff's Office, observed that it's basically just a free-for-all right now through portions of Oklahoma County. They understand the law and even take calculators with them to make sure they are stealing less than (laughs)
1: $1,000.
0: Um, and then, again, Oklahoma now, if you Google it, they have a big drug problem. They have a theft problem. They have a homelessness problem. And then, finally, I, look, I ran the FBI uniform crime numbers. Um, like like most states, crime plummeted from 1994 to 2015. But violent crime statewide is now up 12.3% since the low point of 2014. Aggravated assaults up 17.7%. Um, murder rate rose 35%. The numbers are even more pronounced in Tulsa
1: Metro. Right, which has a big gang problem in Tulsa, by the I way. I mean,
0: what the heck? So so you know, when I speak to my colleagues, they're like, Yeah, New York, De Blasio, Cuomo. Well, you know, Republicans are adopting this in red states.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, look, there's a lot of, again, I think they're probably coming at it from a, a, a bit of a different angle. I think, um, you know, a lot of the conservative support for some of this uh, sentencing and prison reform has been driven by a concern um, for cost savings. Um, you know, incarceration is expensive, but, you know, to my Best mind- is expensive you know, too. <laughs> sure, yeah. And and to my mind, though, you know, criminal justice enforcement um, is one of those areas that really is a core government function that we ought to be spending on, right? I mean, I think what's happened is, you know, because of the increase in spending in so many other non-core government functions, has kind of crowded out the money that's that's available for for serving this really uh, important function of 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 government, which is why in a lot of cases, you have this sort of backlog that that drives longer you know pre-trial detention periods, that drives uh, you know decreases in uh, in speedy trial compliance, et cetera. Um, you know it's and probably inspires uh you know um a lot of the plea bargaining that results in in pretty sweet deals for some of these offenders you know what i mean the the reality is is that our system doesn't have the capacity to do even you know probably twice or three times as many trials as it does now which is why i think um you have this this system where plea bargaining is the you know the dominant mode of of, of resolution to these cases um and i i do think that defense attorneys and and, and defendants have probably you you know, internalize some of that, and and know that they have some leverage here because, um, you know, going to trial is 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 just not something that the system you know can accommodate much more of.
0: Yep, yeah, and and we're talking about problem. again repeat, violent, offenders. Right. You know, not not first time nonviolent yada yada drug felon. Um, you know, that is the rule, not the exception. I would love to get new data on that on on. on you know what percentage plead down, uh, given offense, given a state, it would be great to get some data because just anecdotally, I right. rarely see someone, um, and I mean even even when there's DNA evidence, even when there's 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 cameras, um, you know the the pretty open and shut cases where they get anywhere near the charge that they're arrested on again. Some people are wrongly arrested. Some people, you know, you 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 have the presumption of innocence. We all understand that. But to say in the macro that somehow we're overcharging, over-incarcerating, I mean, I don't know what planet these people live on. Um, gosh, this has been a very comprehensive discussion. We've gone long. I have to mention one more thing. Sure. So the big thing Reagan really hit hit on was insanity defense. And I've noticed a very interesting trend, but maybe it's been there for a while from the left in this whole you know, let people out on the streets agenda. So with a lot of these cases, and this was the case with a lot of the high profile ones recently, the Texas guy that I mentioned, mental illness played a role and they talked about that. And that certainly played a role in the leniencies. On the one hand, they're like, you don't understand. This guy's incorrigible. You can't lock him up. He's not responding. He can't help himself from beating the hell out of you, Raphael. He Mm can't. Okay. So you don't put him in jail. But then, well, he's got to be taken off the streets, so put him in a psychiatric hospital. Oh, no, 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 we're abolishing those. See, this is what I understand, how they're having it both ways on that.
1: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I'm certainly not an expert in, in on the mental health stuff. I mean, we sure. do have people here at the Manhattan Institute like Stephen Hyde and DJ Jaffe who who write about this stuff. I would definitely encourage you and your listeners to to look into their work. But I, I do know that there's been a significant curtailment in the number of beds available in in, in psychiatric institutions um, where people can get the care that they need and and make sure that they're compliant with their their medication programs and stuff. And uh, you know that that has driven some uptick in in some of this, this violence, I think where, where we've seen, um, you know, people with clear mental health problems and histories of mental health problems, uh, engage in some pretty, you know, egregious, um, violent behavior, uh, outside, but yeah, you're right. This is just another plank and sort of diminishing the number of tools available to law enforcement. You know, I, I think that's one of them. Bail reform is one of them. Discovery reform in New York, uh, the reduction in jail capacity, um, you know, uh, the, the decarceration movement, um, you know, new restrictions on police use of force. And, um, you know, the progressive prosecutor movement is another one. Um, so I, 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 I expect at some point, although I, 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 I say that somewhat facetiously that, you know, the criminal justice debates tone will start to reflect some of these new realities. Yeah. Um, but despite all that, I, I do think, um, for a while, the, the, the decarceration crowd will continue to push the narrative that, uh, the system can be characterized by this, you know, sort of oppressive draconian tough on crime approach, even though, uh, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary.
0: Although in your home uh, town, they're really doing a pretty good job uh, changing the narrative, um, You know, it is getting worse. And as your colleague, Heather McDonald, always says, she tells me, yeah, it's got to get worse before it's going to get better. Unfortunately, that's right. um, I think that's what it is. But, yeah, I mean, the insanity stuff, I'm finding that very common when we when we touch on a lot of these real egregious cases, they'll often use that as a defense. Um, I think I even saw with some of the attacks on the Jews in New York City, they're trying to add a dimension of mental illness to it. But again, okay, fine. You don't want to have them in traditional prison, but they got to be off the streets. But no, and then it's aggravated by the decriminalization the of drugs and the homeless problem. So they're all out on, on the streets. There's more drugs. A lot of them are mentally ill, ties in. You know, most of the time when I pass by Union Station, D.C., you feel bad for them. But sure. there is an element, and we're seeing a lot of these stories in New York and California. A lot of them are very violent. And, you know, that. that's I don't care if he's mentally ill or not. That's just as much of, of a public safety problem to victims as someone who is officially not mentally ill or whatever, however you classify any you know any violent criminal. Um, but again, I think just if you tie together a discussion, I wanted people to get a holistic view how it seems like everything is conveniently geared towards shutting off the avenue that will keep them off. You can't go here, you can't go here. And it's somehow steering it to the same result, although they don't want to directly say, dude, we're abolishing prison, we're letting go all the violent criminals, because that's not going to sell.
1: Yeah, I, I do think the modern reform movement is very much a sort of one way ratchet in the direction of leniency, um, even though there are options on the other side of the equation that could, could probably help uh, alleviate some of these problems.
0: Well, thanks so much for your perspective, folks. If you have any questions you want, um, answered on, on an array of the issues we discussed. Uh, let me know. I can email Raphael any time. You can email me at dharwitz at blazemedia.com Subscribe to our videos. Tomorrow we'll be back to some of our other, some of the other big national issues, but I hope this was helpful to you. Um, this is the sort of long-form discussion you're not going to see on cable news, but it is this discussion our nation needs. God bless you, and thanks for listening.